Romans 12. Um, we're going to pick up in verse 9 this morning. But uh, though he's never mentioned by name in this chapter, the central figure is the person of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the uh, Trinity. Um, he's the one that desires to control our lives. Um, when, when we offer ourselves as living sacrifices, as Paul began the chapter, saying that this is our reasonable service, that we present ourselves to him. Um, and, and when we do that, the Spirit of Christ comes into our life and uh, his purpose, once he's obtained access and once he lives inside of us, his purpose inside of us is to control us. He wants to be the Lord. He wants uh, lordship of our lives. He wants to sit upon the throne and to be the one that rules and reigns from inside of us. And when we offer ourselves, that's his desire. Now, once he does that, uh, his purpose in our lives is threefold, and it's all here in the chapter that's before us. What happens when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and has lordship? Um, you know, it's funny how you, you, you kind of imagine someone who maybe gets a government job or they maybe get a, a, a low-level um, position in the White House or some official uh, position there, and they're given a certain level of clearance. You know, so maybe they, they have access to a janitor's closet, so they're key tag opens that door and you know they can get a broom and whatever they need to just clean up or whatever and they can get into the bathrooms and that's that's as far as their clearances go but then as they're promoted uh, they're given more clearance and they can get into um, higher rooms higher areas and uh, and then someone who has top clearance can go anywhere they just can they have full free reign of, of the house they can go wherever they want because they have that clearance and and the person of the Holy Spirit, when he comes into our life, it, he kind of operates in much the same way. You know, we give our lives to Christ, and he accepts our invitation. We open the door, and we allow him to come in, and he comes into our life. Um, but, uh, but for most of us, he has a very low level of clearance. You know, we say, yeah, I want you in my life, but you stay out of most of these rooms. You know, these are mine. And, and so he says, okay, he doesn't force himself. He's a very, very uh, gentleman-like character. And so we give him clearance, and he'll go, go in the janitor's closet, and he'll clean up the, you know, those areas that are just really nasty. And we, we don't like those areas anyway, so we let him live there. But uh, he loves us from there, and he wins our trust. And as he begins to win our trust, we give him a little bit more clearance. We, we, and it's kind of a, a funny thing to think of, but it really is what we do. We promote the Holy Spirit. And <laughs> we tell him that he can have a little bit more room in us. You know, so we give him a little bit more clearance and we give him access to a little bit more of, of our lives. And then he goes in there and we're a little nervous because, you know, we have things in, you know, the way we want them or the way we're used to them. And he comes in and he changes things around. And as he deals in his person and in his power and his love in those areas of our life, we say, wow, you know, you did a little bit better in here than I would have been able to do. And uh, and so we give him a little bit more. And we say, all right, you can have a little bit higher of a clearance. You can come in here, but... <laughs> and uh, and he comes in and in his gentleman way and and we give him space and time and he takes over and he becomes lord of those areas of our life and and we're we're, we're blessed we say wow this is way better than i could ever have done with this and and as we walk with the lord longer and longer um and he wins us over in his love we give him more and more clearance we give him more and more access to our lives and that's the desire of the spirit of god is that he would be the lord of all that he would be uh in charge of every part of our life that w that he is trustworthy to govern even the most intimate things, the things that we, we hold on to the most or the things that we're the most afraid to let go of or the things that we think maybe even could never change. There's no sense giving him access because even if he did, he can't do anything with this. He'll just leave. <laughs> you know, when he sees what's in this room, he'll just go. You know, um, but but we we give him access to all things, and that's his desire. And so his purpose in our lives is relationship and transformation. And uh, and and what he, the way Paul communicates that in the beginning of the chapter is he says through the renewing of the mind. And so as we let him in, he renews, he transforms, he renovates everything from the inside out. So it's this first purpose is to change us, and he does that. The second thing that he does, the Spirit of God, when he comes into our life, is that he enables us uh, by, by um, empowering the gifts that God has given to us. 
And we've looked at that over the past two uh, times together, verses 3 through 8, the gifts that God gives, the gifts of his spirit. And what we kind of discover as, as our gifts unfold is we realize that the, the gifts that God has given to us are kind of things that have al- already been there. They're things that have always been there. They're kind of knit into uh, the way we were created and the way that we were designed. You know, they come very naturally to us. But when the Spirit of God anoints those things, they take on a supernatural element. So whereas we might have been apt to serve, you know, our whole life we've been kind of like been wired that way. Once the Spirit of God comes in and he anoints it, now there's a power that's beyond ourselves to do those things in the supernatural and not just in the natural. And so he comes inside and he, he kind of uh, anoints the thing that we were created for and he gives us gifts and then he shows up in those gifts. You know, when, when the manifestation is there, the word of knowledge, the word of wisdom, faith, gifts of miracles, healings, depending on how he wants to use us uh, at any given time. So he gifts us, he enables us, he anoints us in what's there. But then the third thing that the Holy Spirit does when he comes into our life, not just transformation and relationship, not just the gifting and the enabling and the anointing, but the third thing is the cultivation of fruit. The cultivation of fruit. So not just the presence of the Spirit, not just the gifts of the Spirit, but now the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And you can't look at the New Testament very long without realizing that the fruit of the Spirit is a very important thing to God. God is into fruit. When John the Baptist first came on the scene to announce the coming of Jesus Christ uh, in his uh, first coming, in his incarnation, part of the message of John the Baptist is that he said that every tree that bringeth not forth fruit will be hewn down and thrown into the fire. And he was not speaking of, uh, obviously, orchards and apples. He was speaking of human lives. And he said every tree or every life that doesn't bear fruit is essentially good for nothing. You know, that we were made for a purpose, and the purpose of our life is, is, is what the Bible calls fruit. Fruit is supposed to come out. And John said, and now Jesus echoed the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 7, when he was talking about men don't gather grapes from thorns or figs from thistles, he concluded it by saying, therefore, every tree that brings forth not good fruit will be hewn down or, or cut down. He said the same exact thing that John the Baptist said. Jesus into fruit. In Matthew chapter 13, the parables of the kingdom, and we all know the parable of the four soils, remember? Some seed fell by the wayside, some among rocks, some among thorns, and some fell on good ground. And what did he say? He said, and it bore fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, some a hundredfold. And of course, you know, the the seed that fell by the wayside bore no fruit, because that seed didn't even germinate. And so God, again, very interested in fruit. In Matthew chapter 21, nearing the end of Jesus' ministry, when he came in in his official presentation, remember, uh, he, he descended the Mount of Olives on a donkey, uh, the triumphal entry, they shouted Hosanna in the highest, it was within a week of his crucifixion, and it says during that week, at one point, Jesus was walking through the city and he saw a fig tree, and it says that he was hungry, and he said he, he was seeking fruit on that tree, and finding none, he cursed the tree. And he said, no man eat from you forever. And then the next day when they returned, the tree was dried up from the very roots. And Peter took note of it and said, Lord, that tree that you cursed, you know, and and, and the whole thing. But in the same chapter that Jesus cursed the fig tree because it bore no fruit, Jesus told the parable of the vineyard. And he said that a man let, you know, rented out his vineyard to gardeners and he came seeking fruit thereon fruit from the garden, and he was not able to, to, to obtain. They wouldn't give it to him. Um, Jesus told another parable about a tree, and he said that there was a tree that was planted, and, uh, and, and for three years they took care of this tree, but it bore no fruit. And so they came to him and said, Lord, the tree that, that you wanted, it's not bearing any fruit. Should we cut it down? And he said, well, give it one more year. Fertilize it and see if there's no fruit. If there's no fruit, cut it down. You know, and so over and over again, we see Jesus using this uh, analogy, this picture of fruit. And that's the thing that God desires. He wants fruit to come out of the lives of his people. Well, you say, well, what is the fruit that comes out of a human life when the Spirit of God comes in? You know, because obviously we don't bear apples and oranges. 
you know, and that and that's you could kind of interpret that however you want, you know, however your personality dictates. But what is it for God? What is fruit? Well, Galatians chapter five, verse twenty-two defines it, and there's no better definition than the definition that the Bible gives, right? And so Galatians five twenty-two tells us what the fruit is. What is it that God is seeking to cultivate and harvest from our lives? Galatians 5.22 says, But the fruit of the Spirit, so this is the Spirit's presence in our lives now as He bears fruit, is love. Now, He doesn't say the fruits of the Spirit, plural. He says the fruit of the Spirit. It's a singular thing. And so the fruit of the Spirit is, and it's primarily, so it's one thing that encapsulates all of these things. It's not just you have one or two or you check off you know, a list, but it's all of these things equally, but capitally, primarily, the fruit of the Spirit is love, agape love. Then joy, rejoicing, peace, a settledness, long-suffering, that is patience, gentleness, which is meekness, kindness, goodness, that's doing what's right, faith, that's belief, taking God at his word, meekness, that's power under control, temperance, that's self-control, that's being in control of your bodily appetites and desires and, and tempers and all of the rest. And against such, he says, there is no law. So that's the fruit of the Holy Spirit that, that, that God wants to see coming out of our life that the Spirit um, cultivates. And, and the way that you would define it all in one is this, is that it's the formation of the character of Christ in us. That's the fruit of the Spirit. So when the Holy Spirit comes into our life, he renews our mind, brings us into a relationship with God. He anoints and gifts us according to his purpose but he cultivates in us the person and the character of Jesus Christ. He wants us to be more Christ-like. As we die to our old self, the new is revealed through us. Now, interestingly, when you look at a fruit tree, right, or you look at a piece of fruit, what do you always find tucked inside, right at the core? That's right, the seed. The seed of what reproduces that tree is always tucked inside the fruit. And so as the fruit is developed and then it comes to maturity, at the same time, the seed of what causes it to reproduce and bear more fruit is tucked inside of the fruit to begin with. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that the fruit of a ministry doesn't come out of the gifts? The fruit of a ministry comes out of, or I'm sorry, yeah, the seed of a ministry doesn't come out of its gifts, it comes out of its fruit. And so our ability to reproduce and to bear fruit comes out of our fruitfulness, not our giftedness. Now, interestingly, a lot of times we think it's the opposite, don't we? We think it's our giftedness. We think it's our gifts that are going to reproduce. But the reproduction doesn't come from the gifts. Reproduction comes from the fruit. Reproduction comes when Christ is formed in us. That's when we become fruitful and able to reproduce. However, the gifts are important. The gifts of the Spirit that we looked at in 3 through 8 and the fruit of the Spirit, which is what we pick up with as we will continue in a moment in verse 9 through the end and onward, the two things work in tandem because the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to us provide an avenue whereby the fruit of the Spirit can be given away to someone else. The gifts without fruit is impotent because there's no seed in the gifts themselves. And the fruit without the gifts are defiled by the flesh. And so both things are necessary. We have to be empowered by him as we serve and give away, but we have to be filled with him so that what we're giving is pure and not just you know, a model or a demonstration or a show. We went to a wedding yesterday and um, it was beautiful, as they always are. And it was loud, as they always are, you know, and all the rest. But you see the, the table that's filled with gifts, you know. And there's big white packages and big white bows and everything's very ornate and perfectly decorated and all. 
And as you, you know, kind of think about it, you look there and you like, you kind of can guess. You know, like, well, that one's the punch bowl. That one's, you know, <laughs> that one's a crystal set. You know, that one's a, uh, you know, a bunch of crystal goblets and flagons and all, you know, and all this fancy, these fancy, that one's a crock pot. You know, you can just kind of see all the things that, you know, they registered for and all this. And, and now they're, they're being gifted and they're being given all these gifts, you know, and, uh, all the rest. What would happen if, if we were invited or you were invited over to the house of a newlywed couple, you know, and they were just getting started and they were blessed and they were having you over as guests and, you know, they wanted to share with you, you know, their, a meal or something like that. And you go to their house and as you go to their house, uh, you sit at their table and you see this fine crystal and you see this beautiful plate and this never used silverware and everything is just perfectly in its place. And, and you say, wow, this is gorgeous. And they look at you and say, yeah, these are my gifts. These are my gifts, man. We, we were given all of this stuff for our wedding. Aren't they amazing? And you're like, yeah, these are some beautiful gifts. I wish my gifts were this good. Mine are all run down and old and, you know, broken and lost or whatever, you know. Or I wish I could get a spouse and have these or something, you know. And, and, and there's all the gifts. And you're like, this is phenomenal. And, and, and then you just sit there and you're just staring at the gifts. <laughs> and, then, and then finally you go, well, are we going to have dinner? And they go, oh, right, dinner. Yeah, okay, uh, hold on. And then they go around and they pick up all the plates and they pick up all the, the glasses and the silver and all that stuff and they run run into the kitchen and those things disappear and you're just sitting there and you're looking around and you're like, what in the world? And then a few minutes later, they come out of the kitchen and they have two handfuls of sloppy Joes, right? <laughs> and, 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 and they come in and they just... Right on the right on the table, right in front of you, right where you're sitting, right there, and then they sit back down and they wipe their hands on their thing and you know whatever, wipe their nose, you know, and then they and then it's just like goulash, sloppy joes, you know, yeah. Go ahead, partake of my fruit, partake of the fruit, <laughs> my culinary expertise, you know. You say I ain't eating that. <laughs> because be, I ain't eating. Well, why not? Because it's defiled by your flesh. <laughs> you you've tainted it. It's got flavors in it that I don't want to. I don't want to smell. I don't want to eat. I don't want any part of that. You've you've ruined it because you touched it. You see how the gifts and the fruit work in tandem to serve, to reproduce, and to give away. You can't have the fruit without the gifts, and you can't have the gifts without the fruit. The two things work in tandem, but both of them come by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of serving and reproducing and giving. And so both things are absolutely necessary. In the Old Testament, the priest's garment that, that, that was you know, consecrated and designed by God, it was specifically um, designed and then worn by them. At the base of the border of the garment at the bottom, which the border of the garment speaks of the authority. That's why the woman touched the border of Jesus' garment. You know, At the border of the garment, there was to be, uh, all the way around the base of this robe, there was to be a bell and a pomegranate alternating all the way around the perimeter of the robe, a bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate. And it spoke of the combination of the gifts, the gift being represented by the bell, that which is auditory, heard, seen, beautiful, the gift, and then the fruit. And so the gift and the fruit and the two things were to be in tandem, and that was where the authority came from for the priest. Interestingly, when you read the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians, you reread uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, and all three of those chapters uh, kind of revolve around the same theme. 1 Corinthians 12, we read part of it last week about the gifts, right? Word of knowledge, word of wisdom, healing, miracles, all those kind of things. Um, then 1 Corinthians 13, I think we all know what 1 Corinthians 13 is about, right? Uh, love is patient, love is kind, it does, it's the fruit chapter, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love. But then you get to 1 Corinthians 14, and it's about the gifts again. It's where it talks about the gift of prophecy, the gift of tongues, you know, all these, how all that's supposed to happen in the church. It's, per it's amazing. You give the, the gifts, and then the fruit, and then the gifts, the bell, the pomegranate, the bell, and, and you see how it always works in 
tandem. And so the, the gifts and the fruit work by the Spirit of God in order to reproduce so that we can reproduce. But the fruit is so essential. To be gifted by God, but to not be Christ-like, to not have the character of Christ formed in us is fruitless. You can't bear fruit. You can't reproduce. And you can't please God. It's a tree without fruit. Leaves, no fruit. <laughs> well, anyways, as we get into to verse 9, we depart from our discussion of the gifts and we get into now a discussion of the fruit. What is the fruit that the Holy Spirit brings into the life when he renews our mind and forms Christ in us? Notice he says in verse 9, he says, let love be without dissimulation. The word dissimulation is just a King James word. It means hypocrisy. Um, the, 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 the Greek phrase that makes up this sentence is two words. In English, it's let love be without hypocrisy. In the Greek, it's just two words, agape, which is the word love, and then ana hupokritos, or krinos. It's two words, love, and then ana, which is the, um, in Greek, it's the not, like a, you know, that you would put before something, um, not, and then hypocritos is play-acting. So what it literally means is love that's not play-acting. That's what Paul is saying is, is the, the primary fruit of the Holy Spirit is sincere love. Sincere love. Not fake love. Not love that has an ulterior motive. But just love. Love people sincerely. And that's, that's an amazing uh, thing to have. That is the fruit of the Holy Spirit in its most pure and primary form. It's love without an ulterior motive. Agape love is love that is based upon a choice, but that carries with it action. It's love and action, and, the, and in that it's sincere, it's just given. And, and it's an amazing command that's being given to us here. What he's saying to us is he's saying, just let love out. Let love out. Let it out. You have no reason to, you know, just let it out. Find a person and just love on them. And, and it's an amazing opportunity for us to see the Holy Spirit work through us. When we just decide that we're just going to love someone. You're walking through a line at the supermarket and you, you just like look at the person and you make a choice, a decision that you're going to love that, let love out on that person for no reason at all. You've got no, nothing that you want from them or you're going to get, get, you're just, Lord, I'm going to apply energy and let it out and I'm going to love this person. And you find a way, you find something to say, you know, just find a cheerful thing, a way that you're just going to expend energy on them. And it's, and it's an amazing power and capacity that we have an opportunity to let the Holy Spirit just flood out of our lives, to just love someone. You see someone you don't know at church, and you just decide, I'm going to give to that person by just loving on them. And so you, you just do it. <laughs> I don't, that's why he just says, let love be. Just let it out. Just do it. Love, actively, sincerely, without ulterior motive. Let love be without hypocrisy. Second, he says, abhor or hate, despise that which is evil and cleave to that which is good. That is that our, our attitude towards good and evil is that we're to hate the things that are evil and abhor them. We're to despise evil and we're to cleave to that which is good. Which to cleave to something means that you're, you're stuck to it in such a way that there's no air gap between you and that thing. So we're to get as far away from what is evil as is possible and we're to cleave to what is good. And that's a decision that we make every day, right? So you're, you know, like me, I I'm, can be kind of a news junkie. I, I like to just keep my finger on the pulse of what's going on. And uh, a lot of times I just read headlines. I read very few articles because you can, you know, you, you know what the article is before you uh, read it, you know. So I'll just cruise headlines, you know, and I'll just look at them. And every now and again, I'll, I'll see a headline that, that, that has something in it that, that will be an allurement to my flesh. Like, oh, interesting. You know, what is that, you know? And, and, and the, 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 the command here is once that happens, once you see something that has a possible pull on you, hate it. 
Just hate it. Despise it. Get it out. Sometimes I'll have a young Christian come to me and they'll ask me and they'll say, why is it that there are some sins that seem almost impossible to break free from? You know, why is that? Some things are so easy and other things can be so difficult. Why? And, and my answer to them out of experience is because God in his wisdom has to teach us to hate evil. And sometimes he lets our battle with sin be so long and so intense that we literally learn to hate it through the battle that we fight against it. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. And so we're to hate it. And there's a fruit of the Holy Spirit in us working in tandem with our choice to hate it and despise it. And then what's good, we're to cleave to it. And so as a reflection of Christ, we're to hate evil and we're to, to, to cling to what is good. He says then, thirdly, in verse 10, he says, Be kindly affection to one another with brotherly love in honor, preferring one another. So when it comes to our being amongst other Christians, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is easy in church. And I don't think it, it so much applies. But you could write in there concerning your spouse, concerning your siblings, concerning your kids, right? He says, be kindly affectioned towards one another. That means show kindness. It's interesting how the, the words in Galatians 5.22 keep showing up in here, right? Love, right? Kindness, humility and meekness. Those things are constant themes throughout this. He says that we're to be kindly affection, meaning that we're to show kindness. There's a gentleness in our attitude and the way that we speak to our wives, the way that we speak to our kids, the gentle, the way that we talk to them. And then, and then in humility, he says, preferring one another in honor. It means thrusting other people upward and taking the low road ourselves, not trying to upstage or outdo one another but we're to thrust other people upwards and, and give them honor, preferring them in honor above ourselves. It's so countercultural, isn't it? It's so counter human nature. But it's what we're called to do. We're called to thrust others upward, preferring one another in honor. This is going to come up again before the passage is over. And I don't think there's any greater example of this than Jesus himself. I mean, you can't get more honorable than the Son of God, right? Like there has never been a Jewish mother that can outdo that one. My son is a lawyer. He's a doctor. He's been to the moon, you know. <laughs> My son was up for Pope until they found out he was Jewish, you know. And, you know <laughs> but, you know, my, my, my son is the son of God. You know, you can't, <laughs> you can't one-up that. And yet he was unidentifiable in a crowd. He had to be betrayed with a kiss. Amongst his own followers, he disrobed himself and washed their feet. He said, if I, your Lord and Master, have done this, then ought you not to do the same thing to one another? Being in the form of God, it says, he thought it not robbery to be called equal with God, but he humbled himself, took on the form of a servant. And being found in fashion of a man, he humbled himself even further, and he endured the death of a cross. He just went down and down and down. And then it says, wherefore God exalted him. And the fruit of the Holy Spirit in us, Christ-like character, is to be lowly, lowly. Concerning our attitude in industry, verse 11, the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our work life, he says, not slothful in business, but fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. So there's a negative, and the, the negative is that we're not to be lazy. God, it seems, has a problem with laziness in the scripture. You know, it's interesting as you go from Genesis to Revelation and you look at the people that God calls and the people that God uses, you will never find a time when God calls someone to a ministry or to a place of service and they're not working when he calls them. There's always work. Moses was a shepherd. 
right? Amos was plowing with oxen. I mean, always, every single time, there's a diligence. God is looking for diligent, uh, diligence in, in, in service to him. And so we're not to be slothful in our business. And the things that we do, whether we work for someone else or whether we're working for ourselves, we're to have industrious mindset. We're to work hard. And then he, he defines it. So the negative is that we're not to be lazy, but on the contrary, we're to be fervent in spirit. The word fervent means boiling. You ever seen a pot boiling? It's, it's violent, right? There's a violence to it. I mean, you see water splattering all over the place, and there's energy. I mean, it's just, it's happening, it's moving, it's hot, and it's a, it affects what touches it. And that's the way we're supposed to be, and the way that we work is that there's a diligence and a fervency and an energy and a applying of ourselves to the things that we're doing. And then he says that our attitude, so that's our action is fervence, but our attitude is serving the Lord, in other words, that the way that we work, we're doing it as though we were doing it at the request of God and that we're doing it in the presence of God. Meaning that not only is he the one that asked us to do it, but he's watching us while we do it. Now, what's the difference between the way someone works when their boss isn't around and the way someone works when their boss is standing over their shoulder or they're on camera, you know, in that moment? My daughter made this uh, um, Instagram video of what it's like to go for a run, you know, and it's hilarious. She's like shows herself like running and like panting and like having this wrestling match about I want to quit. No, I want to do this. I can't. You just can't figure out what she wants to do. It's kind of like what you feel like when you exercise, you know, and she's like panting and slaving. And then all of a sudden she, she goes, oh, I know that person. <laughs> She, she like starts running like it makes it look all easy. And then as soon as they pass, she goes, hi, how are you? And then she, oh, this is all right. You know, and she gets back into it. And like, we're like that, right? The way we work sometimes. You know, we just, we, we work like, we, we status quo until the supervisor shows up. And then we're all into it. I remember this one day when I was a carpenter's apprentice, way back at the beginning, I was cutting in these ceiling tiles. And um, my job was to do all the borders. And so you had to cut in all the border tiles. And uh, they were the kind that sit down, that they recess into the ceiling grid. And so you have to like, not just set the tile in, but then you have to cut that little edge and give it like a reveal so that it sits down inside. And I thought, you know, I had like all this morning energy and I thought, well, I'll just go all the way around the border and I'll cut the tiles in. Then I'll go around the second time and I'll cut the little reveal because it's a little bit slower and a little bit more involved, you know? So I'm just racing through and I'm just putting in like border tiles like crazy and you know the, so and all of a sudden the boss comes in and he's like wow you're really moving and then he and then he looked a little bit closer and he goes you didn't cut him in he goes this is all just eyewash that's what he called it he said this is eyewash you're making it look like you're working fast but you're, you're doing nothing essentially is what he said to me and I was like, no and the idea what Paul's saying here is he's saying listen don't let your work be eyewash He's saying, do it as unto the Lord. Work, work as though Jesus himself had put you on earth for no other purpose than what you're doing today. It seems purposeless, but do it as unto him. Then, verse 12, the fruit of the Holy Spirit in trials and tribulations. He says, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. When we go through trials... And tribulations, which we all go through and we all face and we all uh, endure as we have seen and, and know, our attitude is that we're to rejoice in hope. The word hope is the absolute expectation of coming good. The absolute assurance that good is coming from the situation that I'm in. And I'm to rejoice in that good even though that good has, it hasn't come yet. That's the fruit of the Holy Spirit in my life. When the Spirit of God is alive in me, I can rejoice in suffering because I know good is coming. That's my attitude. And then he says, patient in tribulation. The word patience means to be settled. It means to rest. It means to wait. Because the fire has to burn. The trial has to complete. God has to do what he's going to do through it. And I'm not to freak out I'm not to quit. I'm not to leave. I'm to wait in the middle of it. You know, it's funny. Uh, funny thing when, um, when when you see uh, people that are having marital problems, you know, and there's a lot of marital problems. <laughs> Anybody married here? Oh yeah. Okay. So you guys understand. You know, marital marital problems. You know, 
And what's what's the easy thing to do in a marital problem? Chris? <laughs> Quit, right? Yeah, it's the easy thing to do because, you know, because it kind of like seems like, well, if I just quit, then, you know, then the problems cease, you know, that just kill the spider and the web goes away, right? So if the marriage has problems, we'll kill the marriage and then there won't be marriage problems. You can't have marriage problems if you don't have a marriage, you know. The issue with that is this, is that marriage problems don't come from a marriage. Marriage problems come from flawed people. And we're all flawed people. And so what happens is that you quit the marriage, but you're still flawed people. And so all you did was you kicked the problem down the road a little bit further. It's going to manifest itself in another way, equally as painful or maybe greater, down the road because the problem wasn't dealt with. See, the problem isn't the marriage. The problem is the flesh. The problem is self. The problem is me. And until I change, there's going to be problems no matter where I go. Now, that's just not just marriage. It's anything. It's always easier to quit something when I find myself in trouble. But see, God brought the trial, whether it's in the marriage or anything else, because he wants to change me, not the situation or the circumstance. And so I'm to be patient in tribulation because I need to change. And so the things that are in me need to change. And when those things change, then the hope comes, the coming good. The trial doesn't last forever, but I'm the one that needs to change. And then he says, continuing instant in prayer. It's Philippians 4, 6, and 7, famous verse, right? Be anxious for nothing, but in all things by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God, and the peace of God that passes understanding will keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us right? And so we're to pray. So we wait patiently. And this is the fruit of the Holy Spirit as it concerns trials and temptations. Then in verse 13, our, our, the Holy Spirit's fruit in us concerning, mater, concerning material generosity. He says, distributing to the necessity of the saints and given to hospitality. That is that there's to be generosity and liberality in the way that we give to, give of ourselves and give of our substance to others. That we're not to be selfish with our material things, but we're to be those that distribute and those that are hospitable. Do you know, I love the word hospitality in the scripture. Because the word hospitality, there's nothing um, ornate about hospitality. Hospitality is simply sharing what's already yours. It's not entertaining. He doesn't say given, given to entertainment. You know, entertainment is ornate, right? When you entertain guests, that's when you put out your fine china and crystal and wear your nice clothes and clean your house before they come, you know, and make sure everything is perfect, you know, and all that kind of thing. That's, that's entertainment. Hospitality is the unexpected guest. You weren't expecting them. You didn't prepare for it. You didn't do extra grocery shopping. You couldn't clean because you didn't know they were coming. And they just come. Now you open up and, and they're at home and you just share what you have. And the reason I like that is because you can do that anytime. It's just, this is what I am, this is who I am, and what I have and what I am is yours. I'm all yours. It's just being generous. Generous people. That's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. I'm so glad God is hospitable. He's always open to us. This is the Holy Spirit. Verse 14, our attitude towards our enemies. He says, bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. That's challenging, isn't it? It's challenging in the Northeast. I, don't, I mean, it probably is everywhere in the world, but I know we're a very prideful people here in the Northeast. And when someone sticks to you, what's your attitude towards that person? <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> Thank you, Phil. Thank you for your blunt honesty in the abundance of your heart. You know, <laughs> I think I just heard like a few guns like, <laughs> you know, in here or something. <laughs> No, but that is like that's our natural tendency and reaction, isn't it? When somebody does us wrong, like we we want to we want to give it to them ten times worse, and like you know we don't let go. You know, I forgive, but I don't forget, and the whole thing. You know, but that's not the attitude of God. It's not the attitude of the Holy Spirit, and it's not the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is to bless those which persecute you and to not curse them. To bless and not curse. 
And what did Jesus say, right? That when they, when they do you wrong, he says, then do good to them, give to them, pray for them. And he says, in so doing, you're heaping coals of fire on their head. Like that's, that's the fruit of the Spirit in us. God, Spirit, empower us, help us, change us, make us this type of person. Then in verse 15, our attitude towards people. He says, rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. And what, what he's literally saying there is be open, open yourselves up to people. In other words, don't be so to yourself and so insulated from feeling the emotions of the other people that are around you. Get into their world and let them into yours. You know, for me, that's a challenge. I'm naturally an introvert, you know, and, uh, and I, and I, feel naturally like I have very weak shoulders. I'm not good at carrying other people's stuff. I got enough of my own, <laughs> you know, and that's just my natural self, you know, but I'm not allowed to make excuses for that because it's not supposed to be my power and my strength and my abilities. God, the Holy Spirit is saying that he'll give me power to let myself get into someone else's world and let other people into my world. To the point where I'm able to feel the emotions that they're feeling and allow that to happen to myself. You know, I, I remember, you know, a week ago we had a death in the church of a young man, you know, and, um, you know, just so much always going on in my life, you know, just with family and ministry and, and, and you know, you guys understand you've got lives too, you know, and, um, and so, you know, I didn't really know the family. Um, they, the, the family used to come to church here, not so much anymore, some of the kids. And, and, uh, and I didn't know the young man who passed away, you know. And I uh, came to the memorial service, and I found myself, uh, it, you know, I had to catch myself because I found myself purposefully hardening my heart. Like I, I just didn't want to enter into the emotion of it, you know. And, and, and I think that the reason was because I could see my own boys, you know, my own sons. And, and for me to weep with those that wept, would, I would have to relate to that. I'd have to feel it. And I just didn't want to. I, <laughs> I don't want to. And the Holy Spirit here is saying, you don't have that, that right. Give me access to your emotions. Weep with those that weep. Feel it. Feel what someone else is feeling. Get into their world, both the joys and the sorrows of it. And then he says in verse 16, measure with the same ruler, he says, be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. This concerns our relationship with others in the body of Christ. When he says one toward another. And the idea here is that we're to see ourselves on common ground with everyone else in the body of Christ. Now, this is so counter-world because in the world, everyone's on a pyramid, right? Or on a ladder or on a level. And in the world, every one of us, we're always measuring ourselves with one another, saying, well, I'm above that person or I'm below that person. Or I one day will be above that person or I'm going to step on this one in order to get where I need to go. I mean, that's just the spirit of the world. That's how it works. But it's not to be that way in the church. Remember when Jesus was walking with his 12 and he, a couple of times he caught them arguing over who was going to be the greatest and they were trying to bring the pyramid into the kingdom of God. And Jesus says he took a little child who would be the lowest on the pyramid, right? And he set him on his lap and he said to the guys, he said, listen guys, unless you become like this little child, you can't enter the kingdom of God. He goes, in the world, people exercise authority and the rulers call, are called benefactors and all the rest. He goes, it's not to be that way among you, but the chiefest among you is actually going to be the one who's like the child, the one who is the servant. He goes, one is your master and you are all brothers. And that's the heart of our father, the word of our father to us. There's no hierarchy in the body of Christ. We're all on common ground. And he says, be of the same mind one toward another. How do you be on the same mind as another person? Is that you measure by the same ruler. In other words, what's our mind? It's the mind of Christ, the mind of God. What's the answer to the issue? We can each have the same answer because we're measuring according to the same book. What's right and wrong concerning marriage and divorce? What does the Bible say? What's right and wrong concerning human sexuality? What does the Bible say? What's right and wrong concerning the proper use of money? What does the Bible say? 
What's right and wrong about how we raise our kids? What does the Bible say? And see, when the same word of God is renewing your mind and my mind, then we can be of the same mind because we're measuring according to the same rule. And so we're to be of the same mind. That's to be the answer. Our values are established by what God says. Why? Because the Holy Spirit of God is in me and in you. So be of the same mind towards one another. And then he says, mind not high things. Ambition. Seeking great things for yourself, but rather condescend. That means go low to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Here's a great secret. And you'll go far if you can grasp it. Is that in the kingdom of God, the way up is down. You want to go up? Go down. Because he exalts those who are humble. Verse 17. Recompense or repay to no man evil for evil, but provide things honestly in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lies in you, Live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge or revenge not yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink, for in so doing you shall heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. And so, when it comes to our adversaries, right, he says twice in this passage that we're not to revenge or recompense evil. We're not to revenge ourselves, even as Jesus said, we're to give that to God. So what are we to do? He says, provide for things honest in the sight of all men, back up in verse 17. It speaks of just living in simplicity of good character. In other words, you don't worry about what people do to you, Right? Don't worry about what they say about you. Don't worry about the reputation that they put you know, on you and try to make you. He says, you just live right the way you're supposed to live. I forgot who it was. It was one of those guys from another generation, like Spurgeon or something, who said, you worry about your character and let God worry about your reputation. That's good, good advice, isn't it? And I think that's exactly what Paul is saying here. He's saying, listen, you're going to have problems with people. That is unavoidable in this world. You worry about your character and let God worry about your reputation. And that's just a peaceable way to live. You, know, you don't have to go around defending yourself or, 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 or knocking down every accusation. Just you worry about your character. And then if it be possible, as much as is in you, live peaceably with all men. Now, does he say, live peaceably with all men? No, he doesn't say that. You know why? Because it ain't going to happen. <laughs> We're, you're you're going to have enemies in this world, especially as a Christian, because you're swimming upstream. But what he does say is, as much as it's in you, as much as you have something that you can do in the matter, you live peaceably with all men. You make sure that you can say, on on the other side of any conflict, that you did everything in your power to do what's right, or if you did what's wrong, to make it right, Right? And, and that you're reaching uh, every possible measure of peace that you can with a person. And we're not to avenge ourselves, but we're to give place to God to do it. There's a great verse in Second Thessalonians chapter 1 um, that says that it is a righteous thing with God to... Uh, it's verse 6, 2 Thessalonians 1, 6. Uh, it says, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to repay trouble to them that trouble you. Now that, you know, I know a lot of you are like, wow, that's a great verse. <laughs> Where is that? I want to put that on, on the fridge. You know, it's a righteous thing with God to trouble. No, but, but that's, what, that's the truth of the matter is that, listen, we don't take things into our own hands. You know, we just commit it to God and we let him fight our battles. We keep him on that side of us. You know, and so, um, and so he finishes out the chapter. Now, it goes on, and we're not going to go into it, but if you read chapters... 13 and 14 and then into 15 he talks about submission to government that we're not to be those that are resisting or activating politically uh that doesn't mean we don't have a voice it doesn't mean we don't stand up for truth but that's not our mission jesus said my kingdom is not of this world if it was my my, my servants would fight this is not our place in the body of christ it's not the fruit of the holy spirit to go out and demonstrate you know, that's not, that's not the submit. We're to submit to government. And think about who the government that Paul was a part of. 
They were the most anti-Christian government that's ever been. It was Rome. They were killing Christians, burning them at the stakes, right? They crucified Jesus. But Paul said submit, and he submitted to Rome. He also goes on to talk about that we're to have perspective of the times that we're living in. He says that at the end of chapter 13. He says, know the times that you're living in. Understand how God's plan for eternity relates to the age that you live in right now. Always keep two kingdoms in view. That's a fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And then in chapter 14 and then into 15, he talks to us about how to relate to issues concerning legalism, uh, what's allowable and not allowable, issues of Christian liberty and license, and, and what, you know, how we're to conduct ourselves in, in the church, uh, and those types of things, and, and that it's a fruit of the Holy Spirit that we're not to make provision for our flesh and we're to serve other people. So we're not to be denominationally dominant and fighting amongst ourselves as Christians, you know, but we're to, to travel with the weakest and to walk with the lowly. And that's the fruit of the Holy Spirit within our life as he talks about uh, kind of gray matters, things that, that the Bible isn't perfectly clear about. So this is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The fruit that the Spirit brings forth in our life as we allow him inside. You know what you'll notice about all of these things that we read this morning, starting in 12.9 and then working its way all the way through the rest of the book of Romans, is that every one of these things work in tandem with our choice. Do you see that? That the fruit bearing of the Holy Spirit in us, we have a part to play in it. You know, we have to choose whether we're going to let love out or let someone into our life or show kindness, or give place. We choose all those things. And so our part in the matter is to yield to God, in a sense, give him clearance. Give him the keys. Okay, Lord, you can have this part. You can have this part of my life. I trust you with it. And we give him that place in the whole thing. So how is fruit cultivated? Because we all want to be fruitful, right? Jesus wants fruit. God's interested in fruit in our lives. How is fruit cultivated? It's John 15. What did Jesus say? He said, I'm the vine and you're the branches. He said, the branch can't bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit, except you abide in me. And then in verse 7 of John 15, he just said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will bear much fruit. And so as we walk with him, as we relate to him, as we fellowship with God, as we allow his word to be written continually in our heart and to abide there and we make it the framework of the way that we live our lives, as we commune with him in prayer, the Holy Spirit is going to be cultivating his fruit within our life and there'll be a greater depth and consecration of ourselves and we're going to reproduce. And the gifts will work in tandem with the fruit and our lives will be blessed, people will be touched, and it'll be natural. 